Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Jewish Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Hoffman. On this episode, I am joined by Daniel Sokach. He's the CEO of the New Israel Fund since 2009. Before joining NIF, he served as the Executive Director of the Jewish Federation of the Bay Area, as well as Founding Executive Director of the Progressive Jewish Alliance, now known as Bend the Ark. Sokach is also the author of the book, Can We Talk About Israel? A Guide for the Curious, Confused, and Conflicted. Enjoy my conversation with Daniel Sokach. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. I can't wait to dive into a lot of different topics, obviously Israel-focused mainly, but why don't we start with you talking about your your background, where you grew up, uh, how you got to where you are today. Uh, well, nice to be here with you. Uh, I grew up. I grew up mostly in Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, uh, when I was 16 years old, my parents took us on uh, on a trip to Israel, like a UJA mission to Israel. And it was the mid 80s. And um, my mom and my dad and my brother all felt that it was very interesting, and they were glad we did it. And I was smitten. That was it for me, right? I kind of was head over heels in love with this place and and infatuated with it. And that. That has continued for, throughout my life. Um, I went on and went to Brandeis University and studied Middle Eastern studies. Uh, I lived in Israel for a couple of years in the in the in the at the height of the Oslo uh, peace process, which was really like a golden age in Israel in many ways, and certainly um, gave me it made a huge impression upon me. Right? How realistic uh, all all of that is so many decades later is a big question mark, but definitely showed me. Uh, let me experience what it was like to be in an Israel that was sort of reaching its hand out to the world and the world was responding. Um, and then I, I came back to the States. I did a, a, deg- a law degree where I specialized in civil rights and human rights law and a master's degree in Middle Eastern studies. Um, I was the, I would practice law for a, for a minute. And then I was the founding director of an organization called Progressive Jewish Alliance in Los Angeles, a town you're familiar with. And uh, which is now called Ben the Ark. I then went on after about nine years to run the Jewish Federation, the main Jewish philanthropy uh, in in the Bay Area, the San Francisco uh, Bay Area Federation. I did that for just about a year, and then I was recruited to come lead the New Israel Fund, which is an organization I'd loved since I was a volunteer for them after college, and that's where I've been for almost fourteen years now. Amazing, a lot to unpack there. Um, I want to start with your time as the executive director of the Jewish uh, Federation of San Francisco of the Bay Area, effectively, yeah. is what I'm, what I'm saying here. Um, a lot has been said about the federation system in the last decade. Um, a lot of people don't even know the federations exist. Um, the relationship between the federations and Israel. Um, let's whatever happened, happened. You know, we can't rewrite history, but moving forward, right? Let's say over the next five to 10 years, the next generation, maybe up to 25 years. What's the, what's the role of the Federation, the local, the national, the global Federation, so to speak, in the Jewish world moving forward in your, in your estimation? Well, look, I think the problem that the, the central problem that federations have, and, and they're not all the same, right? They're all different, but let's talk about for the sake of our conversation, the Federation as a movement, right? Is that uh, the federation made total sense when it was when it was created, you know, over a hundred years ago. The idea that that when Jews moved to a place, 
they would set up a, a you know all kinds of different organizations family and children's groups educational organizations soup kitchens Hever Kaddish, you know all of the different things that jewish communities set up when they when when they form when they come to a new place the, the federation was a genius idea uh, 120 years ago or whenever they began right because they said look let's just create one central address that will support all of these different efforts so that everyone's not competing with each other um, and that we can sort of have a crow's nest, right? A lookout point to sort of see how things are going in the community and answer needs. And that made a huge amount of sense, uh, you know, a century ago. But my candid response to your question is it doesn't really make a lot of sense now. And I think that federations, one way or the other, and some people won't like hearing this, but, uh, you know, this is my opinion, uh, have a terrible identity crisis. And it's one of the reasons that there's a lot of turnover in federation leadership. And it's one of the reasons why uh, the donor base of the federations nationally have, have um, declined and declined precipitously over the last decades. Because if you don't know what you are there to do and who you are and what your mission is, people will find, they'll figure it out and they'll go someplace where they feel, uh, okay, I understand what this organization is doing. So like the idea of being a central philanthropy that collects money from the community and then doles it out to worthy groups is something that I believe is, is a bit of an anachronism in today's world. People who wanna support the Jewish home, support the Jewish home. People who love the family and children's service, give to the family and children's service. By the way, many of those organizations get the vast bulk of their, of their donations um, from government, from foundations, from individuals. So the Federation's relevancy has declined and declined and declined. And it's not been successful, in my opinion, on a broad scale, with some exceptions in individual locations, in reinventing itself for relevance. And that's why it's declining. And, you know, I don't think there is, and certainly, you know, when I was at Federation, I was clear about how I felt about this with leadership around the country. You know, whatever they whatever they may agree or disagree, I will say that in private, many of them agree. Um, you know, the the inability to confront this and and figure out a way forward is part of the challenge that federations face. So when you ask what should the role of federations be now, my honest answer is to you is I'm not really sure because I don't think federations themselves have a good sense of what they're meant to be doing in the world. And if if the only reason you exist is because you always existed and there are a bunch of donors who are comfortable with you, in, in my sort of humble opinion, that's not really enough to justify you know, your continued presence. So I would urge federation leaderships to, um, to embark on a radical process of reimagining what you do with all the resource that's there. I have plenty of ideas about it, but, um, but it's not my job anymore. So, so hopefully they'll figure it out. Fair enough. But you made an interesting point. You said once upon a time, it made total sense for the federations and the different branches to exist. And I would say that that's a microcosm for what we see in the overall general greater Jewish world, which is you have a lot of organizations that have existed for a decent amount of, of time, some decades, some maybe like, uh, you know, the, the new Israel Fund since 2009. Uh, NIF's been around since 79, even longer. Okay. Uh, you serve, sorry, as the CEO for the New Israel yeah, Fund. Yeah, that's right. I've Excuse me. So, right. so, so your generation is also, uh, your, uh, your organization has also been around for uh, decades as well. So these organizations get started uh, by and large for, for the right reasons we can call them. And then over time, as, as you said yourself, they become less and less relevant and still, uh, depending on who we're talking about and, and, and where they operate, 
either have some level of influence or at least have enough money to throw it around in certain places to try to generate influence. That to me is like a huge issue in the Jewish world is that we have uh, a significant group of people with a significant amount of resources at their disposal that are trying to hang on to what we can call the old, old world. And I can only speak for myself, of course, but as a sort of a newcomer to the Jewish world and, and being a new professional Jew, as our friend Zach Bodner introduced me to that term, I don't, I don't see myself in that old world. And I don't think I'm alone. I think that there's a significant amount of what we can just call young, fresh, new people that want to come into the Jewish world and make a difference. And yet we have these people and these institutions that are effectively unwelcoming of us. And so we say, okay, you don't want my relevant, important skills. I'll go work at Facebook or Tesla or, um, you know, another, if, if they want to work in the nonprofit sector, I'll go work for Charity Water or for Teach for America or what have you. And we're just losing so many great young people. And I'm wondering how you react to, to what I just described. Well, I was that. Right. I mean, I, I, I was 31 years old, 32 years old when we founded Progressive Jewish Alliance, when I was the first director. And it and it was a Jewish social justice organizing effort that meant to 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 introduce uh, the we wanted to connect Jews to the larger issues in the city that we lived in L.A. at the time. We later expanded up to up here to the Bay Area and beyond. We wanted to to make connections between between uh, Jewish Angelinos, especially young ones, although that wasn't how we set out. It was just that we were young. So that's what it attracted. Right. Um, and, and the major issues that were facing the city in those days. Right. They're not different, particularly from the issues that are facing the city these days. But economic justice, you know, sort of um, some of the issues surrounding race and 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 uh, and violence in, in, in LA. So these are criminal justice system reform. These were issues that we felt like called for a Jewish response. And we thought that like the liberal tradition of American Judaism, and here I am not trying to speak for, for Judaism, but there is a strain of liberal American Judaism, which is totally legitimate, right? Despite what some of our fellow Jews might think. And that expresses itself with, with this notion of sort of an obligation to work for social justice. And we thought, well, let's make that really real. So let's figure out how the Jewish community that agrees with us can show up at the racial and social and economic justice tables in Los Angeles. And guess what? Like, and we had a good sense of, of humor and, and it was fun. And we used a lot of arts and culture because we were 20 and 30 somethings and it, and it sort of sprang to life. Um, and so you know, after a decade of doing that, I got recruited to come try to run a big institution, one of those ones that you were talking about. And obviously that wasn't a great fit because I left after a year. But <clears throat> this is what I think. I mean, this is this is my this is the so catch tough love response, Josh, to your question, which is that obviously, you know, there's <laughs> I, I there was an article that was written when I went to Federation when I went to New Israel Fund and it said like a progressive you know, goes to the mainstream and then back to his roots. That it was like in the forward newspaper. And I, I laughed at that and, and because I thought also it's sort of true, but, but the way I felt about it was almost exactly what you said, right? But with, but with this addendum, right? It is really hard. And to, to the credit of the San Francisco Federation, they took a huge chance. I was 39 years old, this out progressive who had done community organizing. And, and they said, well, we see you engaging so many young Jews in this exciting work and they seem to love it. So come transform federation. And I didn't have the 
patience or the skills uh, um, or the deep institutional knowledge to, to know how to do that. I don't, you know, I sometimes think if today, 14 years later, I went back but with the skills I've gained from running a big organization for this long, would I have been any more successful or would I have been like, ah, I'm out of here? I have no idea, but, but, but it wasn't a good fit for me. And I guess here's the point I want to make. If the, if the institutions of American Judaism don't want you with what you have to offer or me, right? Or they make these, these are uncomfortable places for us. Who cares? There are over 6 million American Jews, you know, by some estimates, it's as high as 9 million people. This is, this is a huge relative to the Jewish world. This is obviously the other great Jewish community on the planet in, in the history of the planet al along with Israel. So, so since when did we become people who, who are afraid of competition or creativity? That's our whole, we're entrepreneurial, we're innovative. The things that you're doing are, are emblematic of that. So my feeling about it is, um, you know, and this is kind of how I felt, like we have the luxury of being able to build an alternative Jewish world. Soon the mainstream will pay attention. They did when we built a successful PJA. They recruited me to run a big federation, but there are all kinds of endeavors out there, all kinds right, that are not the traditional institutions of American Judaism, who don't really need to take any marching orders or money from those institutions. The most interesting synagogue movement in the last half century in this country is what's called the emergent movement in synagogues. And it begins in Los Angeles with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Ikar, and they build a non-denominational uh, spiritual community, which is now probably the most exciting religious community that the Jewish community has produced in decades, you know, so much so that that Sharon Brous speaks at the Women's March. Sharon Brous is on the cover of, of Time Magazine and Newsweek. She 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 presides, she blesses the inaugurations of, of President Obama and President Biden. She does the 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 vice president's Passover Seder last year. So I guess my feeling is if the if the but but she doesn't get any money from the movements of Judaism and she doesn't get money from the Federation. So big deal. So we have the power and the ability to build our own alternative structure and eventually when we are successful, when you are successful, the mainstream will come and say, hey, we want a piece of this. And then we can decide what we want to do. But I guess my, the point I'm making, as you can hear, is you are in no way captive to that mainstream that doesn't seem to welcome you. That's their problem. And it's a big mistake. But this isn't a Jewish world of 500,000 people. And if you can't figure out a way to get in, you, there's no, this is, a, this is the United States of America and Israel. And we are an entrepreneurial, creative, energetic people. And so my feeling is if they don't want you or they won't accept you, build your own. I love That's that. That's what NIF is. Yeah, I love that. No, you're totally right. Uh, you made an interesting remark when you were talking about, you know, your time as the executive director of the Progressive Jewish Alliance, which has now been the ARC, as you mentioned. So getting Jews involved in social justice issues that are obviously bigger than just the Jewish community or the Jewish world. And I think you mentioned the word liberal, and I just want to mm -hmm. clarify before I ask the question. So, you know, you said that a lot of uh, that, that the liberal Jewish community is is legitimate, which I don't need to agree to that to, to know that it is legitimate. But but I do agree. Um, why did you why did you uh, sort of. Uh, why did you say that it's legitimate? I mean, are you are you saying that there's sort of a group of people that feel it's not legitimate? Well, what I what I meant was not that the liberal Jewish community is legitimate or illegitimate. What, what I meant to say was there is an articulation of Jewish practice, religion, identity that has emerged in the United States over the last 150 years, right? And, and, and we can see it all the way back 
you know, when, when things like the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society and the workman circles, right, um, which come from Europe, Hayas is built here, when these things sort of become bedrock institutions in the American Jewish community, because of the American experience in America, or sorry, the Jewish experience in America, of being Jews for the first time in history in a place where we were really, you know, while there was certainly discrimination at times, we were allowed to thrive in this country in a way that that we have not been anywhere except for Israel, right? Um, which is many decades later that that happens. The, the, the American Jewish experience has produced a brand of Judaism or brands of Judaism. That's what I'm arguing are legitimate. You know, you sometimes hear in these debates in the Jewish world, um, sneering from some of our friends in the more traditional communities at the expression of American Judaism that that holds close to the notion of of tikkun olam, right? Like that's that's the word that 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 gets made fun of a lot in some modern Orthodox circles, right? Those those liberal American Jews, those reform Jews, those conservative Jews, they know nothing about Judaism. All they have is this idea of tikkun olam, and they don't even understand that. Now that's condescending and patronizing, and maybe there's a little truth to it in that there's less of a of a a facility to understand like deep roots of 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 halachic right inter like Jewish law and and Talmudic interpretation um they do count for a lot and 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 I for one am all for people getting really educated but the notion that what has emerged in this country is not an authentic expression of Judaism right which is evidenced in its clearest fashion in the in what happens in Israel right where the state the official state religion of Israel is a brand of ultra-Orthodox Judaism, which does not recognize other brands of Judaism, right? It refuses to recognize them, despite the fact that governments try timidly, in my opinion, far too timidly, to chip away at that monopoly. And, and in Israel, there are tens of thousands of amazing activists who NIF is very proud to support, who are not timidly trying to change that dynamic. That is the official dynamic. Right. Like thus the irony that in the Jewish state, uh, if you are raised Jewish, but you're not halachically Jewish and you're not converted outside of Israel, you are not considered Jewish. Right. In, in Israel. So what I mean is that brand of Judaism, that that kind of American liberal Judaism, I'm arguing, is totally legitimate as an expression of Judaism, regardless of what the ultra orthodox or the orthodox think or care about it. And, you know, the the predictions that you hear people even the prime minister of israel has 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 talked about this that somehow the american jewish community is disappearing because of intermarriage and assimilation and reform and conservative judaism not being uh, you know authentic expressions of judaism and then and thus not sustainable are false as they've always been false because here we are in 2022 and the latest surveys show the american jewish community growing and and so what I'm, what I'm, the point. Sorry for that long, in, that long interpretation of, of your uh, or answer to your question. But what I'm really um, making the emphatic point uh, uh, of saying is, the notion that there is legitimate Judaism and and then kind of Judaism light illegitimate Judaism. You know, when referring to progressive Jewish. Um, um, values and action in this country, I think is you know is a silly argument that can just be rejected very quickly and 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 finding expression of that Judaism, whether in religious communities like Ikar in LA and the Kitchen in San Francisco and, and different um, communities throughout the country that are growing, or in organizations like PJA, Bend the Ark, you know, those are some of the most exciting things that are happening in the Jewish community in this country right now. So I, I definitely agree that it's, it's divisive, which is just unbecoming to, to, you know, to try to determine what is and isn't legitimate Judaism.
I guess my frustration with some of the, uh, and, and I would call myself a liberal progressive in many ways, not just in the Jewish sense, but in the, the human sense. I guess my issue that I have with uh, maybe the people that subscribe to this sort of liberal progressive Judaism that we're talking about, many of which, by the way, are in my family and my friends from back in the States, uh, as well as in Israel, by the way, Israeli Jews, um, is that, you know, tikkun olam, that's the buzzword. That's the word yep. that uh, seems to be uh, sneered at, sneered at and, and also celebrated. Yep. 100%. Uh, and and so, you know, Zach Bonner actually wrote in his in his book Why Do Jewish that you know when your your version of Tikkun Olam is actually going against uh, your Judaism, which I would say, for example, we, we see a lot of uh, Jews around the world, uh, also in Israel, who um, I'm going to pick and choose my words uh, wisely here. I would say they they overcompensate tikkun olam by disproportionately siding with the Palestinians. And I'm not saying we shouldn't side with the Palestinians, uh, don't get me wrong, but it feels that when you side, I wouldn't say when you side with the Palestinians, I'd say when you are so against Israel and the Israelis in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, in the name of tikkun olam, that doesn't sit well with me. And I don't think that sits well with a lot of people. And, and that's an example of maybe the sneering that you talk about coming, you know, a, a version of it coming to life. But to me, that's something that uh, I'm not saying that Israel's perfect. I'm not saying that what Israel's done as, as part of this conflict has been perfect. A uh, lot of room for improvement, a lot of work to be done on the Israeli side. Um, but at the same time, like, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with uh, disproportionate uh, criticism and uh, uh, dialogue uh, against Israel in the name of tikkun olam. What do you say yeah. to that? Look, I mean, obviously, I, I, I run an organization for 13 years that is the largest progressive investor in Israeli civil society on planet Earth, right? So, like, obviously, I agree that that um, that that's a false dichotomy that that people lay out and and we believe that investing in those israelis trying to build a better country and and realize the founding values of of, of the state of israel is the worthiest expression of engagement and that's what we do right we're the we're the that's that's what we do um but i think there's another false dichotomy at play here and i want to try to tease it out for a minute when I think of the sneering at tikkun olam, it's less about Israel, which I want to come back to in a minute, although I know it's connected and there's a, a nexus between these two things I'm talking about, and more about people sort of um, arguing that Jewish practice as it's, as it's, um, as it's experienced in liberal J Judaism in America, and now I'm using liberal specifically to refer to non-Orthodox denominations of Judaism, the reform, the conservative, the reconstruction, uh, reconstruction it's the emergent communities the 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 you know the the renewal communities things that are not orthodox or ultra orthodox um there israel sometimes comes into play but that's not really what i was talking about i'll come to israel in a minute um what i was talking about are you know a friend of mine once said something i'll paraphrase her by saying something like you know we have we have uh traditional orthodox american jews who know their talmud 
right, and who know their text and who 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 can debate for for hours about sort of um, the kashrut of a Shabbos elevator in their building in New York, right, but who have no uh, who spend no time thinking about what Judaism requires them to do about the homeless people sleeping in front of the building, right? Who don't care, who don't even see those people. So she says, these people are very versed in the practice of Judaism, but have missed the entire point of, Ju of Judaism, right? That you look out for the gear among you, that you clothe the naked and you feed the hungry, right? Jewish or non-Jewish, you can take your pick. You can even be a chauvinist and say, I only care about the Jewish homeless. But these people who are arguing about the Shabbos elevator with all their energy and their brilliant minds are ignoring homelessness on the street outside their building. Then you have liberal, the liberal denominations of Judaism who, who are often, you know, spend their time worrying about the homeless, but don't spend any time becoming literate Jewishly to understand what text says about our obligation to the stranger or our need to clothe the naked. So that's really the, the, the divide that I'm talking about. And I think both parts of the Jewish community are missing something. And I would urge, you know, the, my fellow liberal, and here I'm using the word again in a specific sense, non-Orthodox American Jews to become more familiar with our texts. And, and that was the whole point of PJA, like study with rabbis and scholars about what the Talmud says about 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 the obligation that employers and employees have to one another and then engage with people trying to organize unions for for immigrant workers in Santa Monica's tourist hotels right know your stuff and then engage you know by the way that's my whole point the, the way I approach this book is the first half is understand what the actual facts and stories are on the ground what happened in Israel and then you can debate BDS and is Israel an apartheid state and the settlements and Palestinian citizens of Israel. But wait till you know what you're talking about before you engage. And so that's that would be my wish for the American Jewish community right, and beyond, right? For those of us from the liberal on the liberal side, become literate with what, what the text and the stories say. And for those on the traditional and orthodox side, um, now that you have that literacy and expand your horizon to understand that Judaism was not meant to be something to help you get upstairs without violating Shabbos. It's meant to be something to help prepare the world in a serious way and to confront the, the homeless and, and, and the unclothed and the unhoused, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what I mean. Like, so for me, it doesn't go to the place of Israel. Now, to what you said, yeah, for sure, this is a big problem today and it's becoming a bigger problem, I believe, in American politics. And, you know, that's because I think uh, there are a number of sides that are currently weaponizing the idea of Israel and Zionism and anti-Semitism to achieve their political ends. So when you see in the racial and social justice movement, people, um, people acting like Israel is, you know, the worst and only bad state actor in the world and creating a litmus test in some cases saying, if you consider yourself a Zionist, you're not welcome here. That is weaponizing the term Zionism. They don't even understand what it means when they do that and creating a situation where your opposition to Israel becomes almost like, um, a, a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like a, it's like a fetish. And if anyone uh, doesn't fit your idea of how one should react to that fetish, they're not welcome. And on the other hand, you've got the government of the state of Israel accusing Ben and Jerry's of anti-Semitism because Ben and Jerry says it doesn't want to sell ice cream in the settlements. Well, the whole world thinks that the settlements are illegal, right? And even the United States, with the exception of the four years of Donald Trump, says that they are an illegitimate obstacle to peace. That's the language of the United States of America when it refers to the settlements. At best, 
they are wildly controversial, also within Israel, right? So Ben and Jerry says, look, we love selling our ice cream in Israel, but we don't want to sell it in the settlements, and they're accused of anti-Semitism. Uh, uh, when the EU says, look, we we you can, we love Israel. You guys have Israel has most favored trade status with the EU. They're your biggest trading partner, right? Not not America, not not the Middle East. It's the EU, and and you have this special trade status as an associate member of the European Union. Um, but when the European Union says, look, we have a law that requires what we call meaningful differentiation, meaning that Israeli products that that appear in supermarkets in EU countries. Um, can't be labeled made in Israel if they're made in settlements because we that's our policy we oppose the settlements we are in favor of a two-state solution that is supposed to be according to the position of Israel the Palestinians the Arab League the EU the United Nations the United States the whole world says they're supposed to be a two-state solution we can debate whether that's realistic or not but that's the official position of the Israeli government right now and when the EU says you can still sell goods made in settlements in our supermarkets, but they have to be labeled made in Israeli settlements. Michael Oren, right, a former ambassador and, 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 and former American and former minister, says that's anti-Semitism. It's like the Nazi boycott of the Jews. These two examples I've given of the fetishization of Israel in the racial and social justice movement in this country, where it is the repository for everything that is bad, um, and the way that reasonable Israeli government officials have um, have weaponized the term and I believe misused the term anti-Semitism to apply it to people who don't agree with the settlement enterprise is are two great examples of why what you said is such a problem now. This stuff is roiling the debate. There is totally legitimate criticism, as you suggested a moment ago, in my opinion, of Israel's policies, just like there is of any country's policies, including any democracy's policies, including the United States' policies. And opposition to those policies, even even uh, even harsh opposition and criticism of those policies, does not equal anti-Semitism um, in and of itself. Now, it can cross the line to anti-Semitism, but but it but 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 saying I oppose the settlement enterprise and I don't want to sell my products there, or I don't want you to label settlement products as Israeli products, there's that is not anti-Semitic. And so the problem is we we walk into this field where. Where is where Pal Palestine has become the cause du jour of some on the left, um, and and some on in Israel and in the Jewish community label any criticism of Israel or any support for Palestinians as anti-Semitic and anti-Israel. And I refuse to accept that that dichotomy. I think it is a um, a totally uh, false one on both sides there. So. What I get is when you say, I don't like hearing the tikkun olam people criticizing Israel, you know, some of them are criticizing Israel because it's the issue du jour. Some of them are criticizing Israel because they just don't like Jews. Some of them are criticizing Israel because, in an unfair way, only criticizing Israel. But the notion that you could criticize Israel for the things that they're criticizing Israel for, which are the occupation and the settlement enterprise, um, that's understandable to me. And I think that if we think people are going to ignore it, you know, in, in a world where there is there is no distance uh, anymore because of the Internet, everything has been flattened. So, uh, you know, Palestinians having agency and saying we've been living under a military occupation for 55 years and and the settlement enterprise and Israel has built now uh, communities that house almost over 700,000 Jewish citizens of Israel in territory that Israel captured 
1967. That's a problem that we can't sweep under the rug and we can't pretend that it's not a central cause of the conflict and we can't pretend that it isn't fueling anti-Israel sentiment around the world. Lot, lot, lot to unpack there. So you mentioned your book, by the way, Can We Talk About Israel, which we'll get to your book in a few minutes. Um, I just want to make sure that people understood uh, the reference to the book. Uh, Sorry, yeah. Let's start with the first part, uh, which is really talking about what we call Jewish literacy. Uh, you're saying that in the non-Orthodox worlds, it's few and far between, we can call it. I would agree with you. I grew up that way. Uh, didn't did, had the sort of opportunity, quote unquote, to be Jewishly literate. But ultimately, the institutions that were uh, tasked with uh, uh, helping me become Jewishly liter literate were not, uh, in my estimation, uh, very effective. Yeah. We talked about at the beginning of this episode, the idea that these institutions, which have been for many decades, the gatekeepers to Judaism, and the fact that they're really just not living up to what they used to maybe once upon a time in delivering um, effective and enjoyable and uh, compelling access to different aspects of Judaism. On the other hand, we're saying most non-Orthodox Jews today are Jewishly illiterate. So there's, a, there's another dichotomy there, which is to say, okay, so on one hand, the, the institutions that are supposed to make us more literate are not doing their job correctly. Uh, and I don't think money's an issue. I think there's, there are other issues there. We know a lot of these institutions have more money than they know what to do with. On the other hand, we're saying, listen, non-Orthodox Jews, people like you and me, y'all gotta step up your Jewish literacy. Obviously you have this thing called the internet, which if you look, not even hard enough, but if you just spend a few minutes, you know, uh, looking up different aspects of Judaism, you can find some really good stuff. But we also know that the internet has a lot of really bad stuff and things that are, you know, whether it's fake yeah. news or, or misrep misrepresentations. So how do you, how do you uh, suggest that we can move forward in a way where people can become more Jewishly literate, both Jews and non-Jews, I would argue it's important, in a Jewish world, which is still dominated both financially and otherwise by Jewish organizations and institutions, which unfortunately have not displayed the level of effectiveness that is, uh, in my estimation, necessary to get more people Jewishly literate. Well, look, I mean, the answer to your question that I'm going to give is embedded in the very question. And you can probably guess what I'm going to say. And, you know, again, this is an answer that a lot of people may not like. But uh, I think <laughs> that if, for example, the federations understood, there, there are some great delivery vehicles that exist already um, to provide a, a level of Jewish literacy. And by the way, excitement and love and engagement beyond the, the Orthodox world. And, um, and, and, and some of them are, are pretty economical, right? Like Jewish summer camps are a, a, a major delivery vehicle for basic Jewish literacy. Um, it, you know, and again, some will argue that what they're delivering isn't the Jewish literacy that those people want to see people have, but that's uh, that's why I said I, I'm, I'm not terribly concerned about that, right? If you go to your conservative or your reform or your funky liberal Jewish summer camp and you learn um, the basic principles of Jewish davening and you learn um, 
in informal education, some 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 basic Jewish literacy. I think that's a great building block. Uh, I think that the emergent synagogue movement that I described, which are wildly popular, super exciting modes of engagement, you know, all of these things could be funded a lot more than they're funded right now. Um, you know, we can talk about the day schools. I, I, you know, it's not it's not my thing, um, but 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 uh, because I think it's important for Americans to mix and mingle in their educational. Uh, lives to the best that we can do it, whether you're in private school or public school. But there are delivery vehicles for Jewish literacy that the federations could could um, decide that they wanted to make much bigger investments in rather than doling out the money the way they're doing it now. There are all kinds of interesting projects out there. But but again, you know, <laughs> like the unpopular part of my answer, maybe with you, is going to be, uh, you know, I, I don't know that there's an answer for everyone. And I don't, and I, and I've one thing that has come as I've gotten older is is a realization that what what I thought was well if you could just if you could just put the right pieces and right people in the right places you could solve this problem it's so obvious you've got these institutions with all this money you got all these people and you've got really innovative creative people you know like you Josh right and like like I was twenty years ago who are ready to do cool and exciting things so obviously just like get them funding and support for those people to do their projects to engage all those people who want to be engaged. Well, it turns out it's not as simple as that, which is why I come back to my, yeah, well, so you have to build it yourself. And maybe it's not a mass movement. Maybe it's more boutique. And you build these things and the people who are lucky enough to find them, find them. Um, but, but what I really wish, you know, th there could be some exciting moonshot ideas in Jewish life. You know, want to know what I wanted to do at Federation? And, and, and the board of the Federation loved this idea, but neither they nor I had the ability to realize it, you know, 15 years ago. Um, I, I thought a really cool thing would be if we worked to make a term of service to the community normative in the lives of all young Jews, the way, you know, Mormons go on their mission for two years when they're young. My idea was start in the Bay Area and say, you got to serve. It doesn't matter if you serve in in San Francisco or in Israel or 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 in Africa, right? There are all kinds of great organizations out there that provide these service experiences, um, whether it's Teach for the, Teach for America or the Peace Corps. And what we could do is we could be the hub. We could um, connect young Jews to these opportunities. We could make sure that the funding and insurance stuff is there to allow them to do it. Um, we could make it normative, and we could then provide. We could build and provide Jewish content right alongside the experience that they're doing to to sort of give people that literacy to understand why this is a profoundly jewish thing to do and um everybody loved this idea but again like i said i didn't have the skills and uh and wisdom when i was 40 years old to figure out exactly how you move a big organ and i don't know if anyone could but i couldn't move a big organization to, to sort of realize something like this but the point i'm making is only that you and i sitting here could spitball like six things that could actually change the face of of Jewish literacy and Jewish engagement in this country. And then we'd say, oh, well, what we need is money. And as you said, that's not the problem. There's plenty of money. It's just how do you get people um, to part with their traditional priorities to see that there needs to be radical investment in new, exciting things to engage people? So I do want to plug uh, a friend of mine, Pete Eckstein, out of Canada, who did start a program called uh, Jewish Year of Service, which is effectively what you're talking about. He hasn't reached anywhere. In, he hasn't reached anywhere near the scale that is necessary. I actually interviewed him episode two of the future of Jewish podcast. So check that out if you haven't already. Uh, I agree with you. That's a great uh, uh, 
vehicle to to engage the the kinds of uh, uh, people and ideas and and service that we would uh, that would be super beneficial in the Jewish world. Okay, now I'm going to ask you a very very hard question, and I'm I'm prefacing it now, Daniel, because it's going to be uncomfortable. But for it, I believe but I, I believe that uh, candor is uh, something that's uh, widely missing in the world, in the Jewish world especially. And let's go back to the conversation about Israel and the Palestinians, because you said, and and you actually said facts, it's not like it was your opinion, that the EU and the United States and all these bodies and countries and organizations around the world want to see a two-state solution. And that's great. I do too, by the way. Do the Palestinians want to see a two-state solution? Now, hold on, before you answer, let me preface this. I can't speak for all the Palestinians, nor can you, nor can anyone else except for the Palestinians themselves. I think that the actual answer is we don't know. We don't know how many support a two-state solution. There was a study done in 2020, which I mentioned in my book, uh, that did talk about this. It's actually about 50-50. But, you know, when you're doing studies and polls, people lie. They don't really tell you how they're really feeling. Whatever. Take it with a grain of salt. Here's what I'm saying. The average Israeli will tell you this. We gave them Gaza. We withdrew from Gaza. Okay. And that created a vacuum, which therefore created Hamas, which created all these mini wars that we've been having. I've lived through two of them now living in Israel for the last nine years. And we don't want that to happen again. So if you're telling us to withdraw from the settlements that have been created legitimately or illegitimately in the West Bank, well, history is our best guide, is it not? So who's to say that if we withdraw the settlements, if we uh, truly enter into an agreement for two states, uh, that what happened in Gaza is not just going to happen tenfold in the so-called new Palestinian state. And my biggest issue, and I'll be curious to hear how you react to this, about the Jewish world outside of Israel is they don't know what it's like to live in Israel because they never lived here. You lived here. But most Jews outside of Israel have never lived here and have not lived here since the foundation of Hamas in Gaza. So, you know, it's, it's very easy, as you know, Daniel, to sit in your comfy suburban home in San Francisco or in Los Angeles, where I'm from, or in New York or in Paris or in Sydney, Australia, and say, well, this is what Israel should do. Come live in Israel and come experience a Tuketan operation, uh, 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 something edge. Uh, protective uh, edge. Protective edge, exactly. Uh, or the operation in 2021, I believe it was. Uh, and, and then tell me how you feel about, you know, this, this so-called two-state solution, because the Israelis want two states. The EU wants two states, the US wants two states, you want two states, I want two states. I don't know definitively if the Palestinians want two states, or at least if, if, if enough of them do. And we know that democracy doesn't exist in their part of the world. So, you know, voting on it is not really valid here. And therefore, I'm not really interested in taking a risk that was already taken in Gaza to test this idea that we already know based on history, the answer to. What do you say to that? So a few responses to that. First of all, I completely understand why any Israeli would feel that way 
um, after what happened in Gaza. I will also say you should maybe have someone like Yossi Balin on your show. There were a lot of people who were saying to Prime Minister Sharon, don't unilaterally withdraw, right? Figure out a way to do it in, co in coordination with the PA, because if you unilaterally withdraw, you're going to create a vacuum, and into that vacuum it's going to come Hamas. So that's an interesting piece of history. It's also interesting whether Israel is in a better or worse situation than when it had 10,000 settlers and tens of thousands of soldiers patrolling Gaza uh, endlessly, uh, you know, so that, that's a that's a tough question. Like, what's a what's a worse situation? The awful situation now, where there are militants in Gaza who open fire on Israel from time to time, or when there were tens of thousands of Israeli soldiers stuck uh, protecting and facilitating uh, the, the ten thousand settlers in Gaza. So I think that that's a totally reasonable question. I also think it's like as I just said, more complicated than that um, because things happened the way they happened. Um, but there are plenty of Israelis who were arguing that they should have happened a different way. But putting that aside, I'm going to answer. I'm going to. I'm going to answer your question in two parts, and one is going to be an equally harsh thing back to you from someone who is a proud liberal Zionist and who loves and cares about Israel and has lived in Israel. Which is, do Israelis want a two-state solution? Because I'll tell you this: the current prime minister and the past prime minister, and we're talking 14 years of prime ministers now, have said publicly. No way, no two-state solution, not on my watch, not in any way that looks like anything we've ever talked about before. So there is a disconnect when we have this conversation, when I have it with a lot of Israelis. Again, don't take my word for it. You know, Google it right now. Um, not just you, Josh, but any listener, right? Prime Minister Bennett and Prime Minister Netanyahu made it very clear that they would never countenance a two-state solution. So you're a Palestinian who's heard this from Israeli leadership for 14 years, and you've seen the settlement enterprise grow and grow and grow. So, you know, when you say, do the Palestinians want a two-state solution? In the book, I talk about a conversation I had with a, a Palestinian uh, nonviolent leader, right? A, a guy who, who was a big champion of Oslo, but his family have been sort of, they, they're very proud. They say, we resisted the Ottomans. We wanted independence from the Ottomans, from the British, from the Jordanians, and from the Israelis, right? We want, we want independence. He says, uh, I don't believe in a two-state solution anymore. And I said, really? Well, what do you believe in? He said, don't get me wrong. I still think it's the best result. I still would like to see it. I don't believe it will happen because Israel, which has basically all the power, will never give it to us. And why do I think this? Because the prime minister, this is during Bibi a few years ago, has said for a decade, no way. And because I see what's happening with the growth of the settlement. So I have a new thing that I want. And I said, well, what is it that you want? And he said, I want the vote. And my question to Israelis is, what will you do if ever there is a mass Palestinian movement, peaceful movement that just says, you won, uh, you know, there's no way that we can extract all these people and all these communities that have been built. Um, so what we want is the vote. We just want to be part of Israel because there's a because because I think that calls the question. Right. I, and so I'm 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 I, I answered your question with the same candor that you asked it, which is that I think it's very easy for Israelis to say that they want a two state solution without doing any of the things that Israel as the major power in the region would have to do to achieve it. And let's go back to our friend uh, Ari Shavit in his book, My Promised Land. He uh, rhetorically, I'm going to paraphrase it awkwardly, but he has, I think, a great answer to that question, because, you know, let's say there is no partner for peace. Let's say that that I'm not saying you, Josh, believe this, but let's say that common view in Israel that there's no one you can make peace with because they don't want peace is correct for the sake of argument. Right. What possible justification is there for Israel to put one more house or one more brick in one more apartment in, in the territories? 
What possible justification is there for Israel to increase the settlement enterprise, which obviously is on our side, on the Israeli side, something that we're doing that is making a two-state solution further and further away? It's not the only thing, and there's plenty of things on the Palestinian side. By the way, under international law, an occupation is legal in some cases if you can't make peace. We, were, we occupied Afghanistan for decades and, and Germany and Japan. Um, what is never legal under the Fourth Geneva Convention, which Israel is a signatory to, right, is moving your civilian population into land that you've conquered. Doesn't matter who controlled that land before. So the notion that, that the prime minister says it's disputed territory, he says on CNN last week. Well, Israel disputes the, 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 uh, the, 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 the disposition of that territory, but it's very clear Israel is not permitted to move its civilian community into territory conquered by war, no more than Russia is in Ukraine, right? People do it because might makes right, but that is violative of every principle of post-war international order. So Shavit's question, right, which is let's say there is no partner, let's say the Palestinians will never make peace with us, why should Israel double down on a big mistake that is making it harder and harder morally as well as strategically, for it ever to be able to make the claim that it really wants a two-state solution. So that's uh, the question I would pose back to you. Fair enough. And, and we'll move on in, in a few minutes because, you know, this conversation can go on forever. But I do want to add one thing and then hear what you have to say to it. You know, when I moved to Israel and started learning about Israel through Ari Shavit and other books and uh, making Israeli friends and studying the history and the people and the culture, I was, I was pretty against the settlements, uh, you know, I was probably more in your camp than maybe the camp I'm in today. Um, you know, the, the, the question of, uh, do I want a two-state solution is, is not the, the question that really matters because it sort of uh, prefaces or assumes a perfect world. I think the question that this gentleman in your book really uh, hit on, which is true, is, is it possible? Is it probable? It's possible, but is it probable, knowing what we know today based on what's happened? And I think that a lot of Israelis today, uh, myself included, um, would say that, no, it's not probable. Uh, and, and a lot of people around the world would also say that. Uh, I think that's kind of the rational uh, view today. Anything can change, don't get me wrong. But what we know today, I think it's improbable for there to be a two-state solution. Uh, I hope I'm wrong. Um, so then the question becomes, okay, so you have this, this area, which is, it's, it's nothing, it's not a country. So you're not sharing a common border. It's not like uh, Jordan or Egypt or Syria or Lebanon. It's literally no man's land. And we know no man's land is not a good place to be for anybody. And so then the question becomes, well, if it's no man's land and if Israel, uh, like any country has the, uh, the right effectively to uh, protect itself. And it says mm -hmm. that in order to protect and defend our own country and our own people, we need to create these settlements, which by the way, I'm not saying I, I agree with that. Oh, wait, I want to just interject one thing in your otherwise logically impeccable argument thus far. Right, right. No one seriously argues that the settlements are there to protect Israel. The IDF is there to protect Israel. Correct. Guarding the, the borders of the Jordan Valley is to protect Israel. You could even argue that the checkpoints that are that are between Israel and the territories are there to protect Israel. But no one has a serious argument, a, a, let me say a credible, honest argument, that the reason Ariel, a city of tens of thousands of people, or 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 Adumim, a city of tens of thousands of people, um, or or you know, or smaller, or Kiryat Arba, or the settlement in the heart of Hebron, 
right? No one argues that those things are there to protect the borders of the state of Israel. Not credibly. That's not a serious argument. They're there for lots of reasons, right? Because people believe that that land belongs to the Jewish people, because people have a religious motivation for being there, because people want cheap, affordable housing in a pretty countryside, because the Israeli government wants to create a big ring of Jewish settlement and, and neighborhoods around Jerusalem so that it can't ever be divided in any way. Those are, whether, whether we agree with those goals or not, those are the reasons why Correct. there are settlements there. It's not to protect the people within the Green Line. So let me ask you a question. What is the Eastern border of the state of Israel? Well, it's supposed to be the sea. I mean, in theory, it's supposed to no, be- No, no, that's the Western border of the state of no, Israel. No, 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 spo- isn't it supposed to be the- the... No, no, no. What's the what is the eastern border of the state of Israel? Like, a, I'm not. It's not a trick question, right? Like, no, I, that's I'm what I'm saying. Isn't it supposed to be the the Dead Sea and effectively going north of it? But north, well, north of the Dead Sea is is a bunch of non sea territories. Correct. So like, that's what I'm saying. I guess what though, I'm I mean, trying to get yeah. at is, I think it's almost impossible for any Israeli to tell me today what the eastern border of the state of Israel is. Right. And I think that in order to be a democracy, we would agree that the fundamental principle of democracy is what? It's one person, one vote. That's it. That's, that is like everything else is commentary, as Rabbi Hillel might say. Right. The fundamental principle in democracy is that everybody gets a vote, right? Correct. Okay. So if you can't tell me what the eastern border of the state of Israel is, and everybody has to have a vote for democracy, and and we have millions and millions of people living under Israeli control next to hundreds of thousands of people who are Israeli citizens living in this conflicted territory that you described, and the Israeli citizens get to vote, they get to they get to uh, serve in the Knesset. There are settlers who serve in the Knesset, but right. 2.5 million Palestinians don't get to vote and they don't get to serve in the Knesset. How, w- w- what, what is the future for that arrangement? And, it, and, and, and now it's been over half a century. And, no, and, we, know, and again, we know what the future is and it's not a, it's not a pretty future for, for well, us or them because ultimately we'll have to choose between democracy or a Jewish country. Right, and, and ben that's Gurian, a hard, yeah. and Ben-Gurion himself. You know, emerged from self-imposed exile and retirement in stable care in September '67. He came to speak at a uh, a think tank in Jerusalem when people were ecstatic over you know the incredible victory in in, in the Six Day War. And he, like a like a Jeremiah like figure, a prophet of doom, he said like, "Look, we have to give it back." He actually said, "Not East Jerusalem, not the Golan." He was a very prescient guy, BG. But he said you have to give the rest of it back, even if you don't know who you're, even if there's no one clear to give it to, even if you can't. Yeah, but you know, I, yeah. But, First but, of but all, listen, it's easy but, to but say he, that. But the point is, he 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 predicted the problem Israel has right now because if Israel, you said it, if Israel wants to be a democracy and a Jewish state, it can't continue to rule over 2.5 million people who have no rights. There's a word for that kind of a situation, but it's right, not but, Hebrew. You know, it's 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 Afrikaans. Right. And, and if Israel wants to be a Jewish state and 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 if it wants to be a democracy and keep all that territory, it won't be a Jewish state. Correct. So it seems to me there's only one real solution. And and if you can't achieve it now for the reasons that you said, right, if Israelis say, like, I don't think it's probable, then at the very least, how do you answer the Shavit question? Right. Which is why are we continuing to build the settlements? OK, but let's talk about the religious aspects. You know, so we put aside the defense aspects. I would argue, by the way, that potentially having more land in Israel, when you have a country in our neighborhood in Iran, who clearly is trying to develop nuclear capabilities and could easily take out uh, Israel with one nuke, which Jews should know that we should take people for their word. Our history is long enough and sad enough to, to know that. But let's put that argument to the side. 
the sort of religious or nationalistic uh, reasons why the settlements continue to be built. Um, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle, to be honest with you. I, I'm not totally opposed to them. I'm not totally uh, in favor of them. I, I do wonder, though, you know, at a certain point, <laughs> the Palestinian people, you, you talk about democracy. Well, first of all, they're way further from any form of democracy, not to mention the Arab world in general, uh, than, than we are. And trying to impose liberal values on other people doesn't work so, so well for, for the Western world. We know that to be true, especially in the Middle East. Uh, I'm wondering, though, like, you have two bodies that are uh, reigning supreme over the Palestinians. You have the Palestinian, uh, Palestinian Authority and you have Hamas. So you have three bodies that are reigning supreme over the Palestinians. What, Iran? No, Israel. Correct. Israel but... controls most aspects of the lives of most of the Arab people who live between the river and the sea. Remember, there's now equal numbers of Jews and Arabs. If you count uh, the West Bank, the, the Palestinian and settler population, the state of Israel, Arabs and Jews, and Gaza, Arabs, there's equal numbers now between the river and the sea. And there's three polities that control the lives of, of those Palestinians, not, not who, Iran. Right, but, but, but so, so two things I would say to that. Definitely true. One is that when you're talking about a partner, so who's the partner? We don't really know if it's the, the Palestinian mm -hmm. Authority or Hamas. They don't like each other between the two of right. them. So somehow thinking that they're going to fall in love with each other tomorrow is... Uh, wishful thinking at best. Uh, two is, uh, one can make the argument that the Israeli government takes better care of the Palestinian people than the Palestinians take care of themselves. And so uh, that's not to justify by any means. That's not to justify the settlements and illegal activity or immoral activity that the Israeli government uh, demonstrates uh, now or in the past. I'm just saying that at the end of the day, we, there has to be somebody on the other side. I mean, you and I can sit here and debate and use liberal values, which may not be relevant here. That's, that's the other thing that really bothers me and something I've learned is that when I moved to Israel, I was super liberal and progressive. And I said, no, this is what I've been taught. This is how I've been raised. Anywhere I live, that, that's just not the way the world works. There's many ideologies in the world. There's many types of government, not saying that, for example, they're all great or good or progressive in terms of you know moving humanity forward but this idea where we can come in this case i see it a lot in the american jews and uh impose our liberal values on a region and on a country uh because this is how we live in in the united states for example to me is a little off base i think you're totally right about that and i think that israel is not a liberal country anymore right for all kinds of reasons that we can look at it's got liberal pockets you live in one of them but there are a lot of people in israel who don't actually think you know they would be much more comfortable and they have voted in, in previous elections for something that looks more like orban's hungary or 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 brazil right an ethno-nationalist state that's what netanyahu built his brand on um but but i want to i want to push back against something that you said about the national religious reasons for the settlements and you you saying that you now have more sympathy for them i guess you know this is why i go back to the shavit point about about like let's say there's no partner for peace right so what do you think is going to happen if israel doesn't ultimately understand that it is going to need to uh move settlers back into israel proper right it's been over half a century so right like so it's like like i don't think that's very probable either by the way but what do you say to my my uh my palestinian friends comment right that like okay fine you, you, i know you're not moving those back i want the vote 
I want to vote in Israel. I want to be an equal citizen in Israel. Like, what do you say to that? I mean, how do you, Josh, as like a liberal Israeli now, right? Or, or moderate Israeli, what's the justification in your mind morally and strategically for saying, no, no, 2.5, you know, 2.5 million people should actually be treated in this way and not have a right to vote and not have uh, representation in government. I, I mean, I, I guess, I, I don't know. Like what I always wanna say is, okay, so what's the plan? You know, Mr. Bennett used to like to say, no, we'll have we'll have hyper, uh, what did he call it? He call it tur turbocharged autonomy or hyper autonomy. And, and you know, they'll, they'll be able to sort of vote in their little local elections, but we'll control the borders. Of course, Israel does control the borders. It's not the Palestinian authority who gets to say who goes into Jordan, it's the IDF, right? you know, we'll have a special port for them and there'll be a special highway. Would Jews ever accept that? Would we accept hyper, would any people in the world accept hyper autonomy? And, and I mean, it's, 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 so I guess my question for you as a smart, sensitive young guy who's chosen to live in Israel, what is your answer to those people like Tamimi? You can't just say there's a tiny group of you who are terrorists. There's tiny groups of Israelis who are terrorists. You can't just say Absolutely. your leadership is corrupt. He would say, I didn't vote for my leadership. I live in Area C. I'm controlled exactly. by you. Yeah, yeah. Right? What do you say to those people? What's your plan for those people if you justify the settlements? So I would say that, um, I would say two things. One is that the Israelis have a lot more work and better work to do to come to the table with uh, a serious plan. I think what you just described from from quoting Bennett is doesn't sound very serious or uh, reasonable or um, acceptable, as you said. Um, I would say the same thing to the Palestinians. Y'all got to get your shit together and uh, come as one group of people, not as factions in the West Bank and factions in uh, I don't know Gaza and factions in one people. We're one people with one government. If you want to be considered a legitimate country, just like any other country in the world, you come and you figure that out. If you want to do a democratic vote, if you want to do a whatever you want to do, that's your it's your country. It's, it's your people. You guys figure it out. And, and what I would ultimately say is that I have uh, much more faith based on history that the Israelis would do their work, so to speak, and that the Palestinians won't do theirs, continuing to play the victim card. And what I would say is this, if I have to choose, because ultimately what we're, what we're saying here is that we're going to have to, we're coming to a junction where we're going to have to choose between A or B. If I have to choose between uh, Israeli imperfection and uh, things that maybe personally I don't agree with uh, versus um, over, over accommodating the Palestinians, then I'll choose the Israeli imperfection for one, one reason, only one reason. It has nothing to do with the Palestinians. It has everything to do with Jews and Jewish history. This world is a better place with Jews in it. Period. Can't argue that. Okay, we're not talking about a few centuries. We're talking about effectively 4,000 years of Jewish innovation, creativity, philosophy, lifestyle, culture that has been exported around the world and benefited everyone on, on the planet that virtually has access to what we can call mainstream life. And so if you're telling me to live in a country with people who I know in a few generations will get rid of everything Jewish because that's what they did in Gaza. And if you're telling me- Well, that's uh, what we did in Gaza. We left Gaza. 
No, but 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 it's very clear that for a long time, this has changed in the last decade, but for a very long time, the Israelis have done the work to put Israel in a position, we saw this in the 90s with Arafat, to, uh, to, to create a two-state solution, a true two-state solution, okay? Now, we've gone away from that, and there's been reasons for that, some legitimate, maybe some not. But at the end of the day, if, if we have to choose between this or that, then I'm saying, yeah, listen, the Middle East is a big place. And the, the lifestyle of the average Palestinian and the belief system and the education and, and, and the culture can be found in a lot of other countries in the Middle East. So what I would say is this, if I have to choose between Jewish and democratic, I'm choosing Jewish because we, we as Jews have, it's true that we have a duty to better the world, but not at the expense of our own selves. So I, 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 I want to argue that that I hear what you're saying. I think you're setting out a bit of a false dichotomy, right? Because I'm asking a simple question, which is why not listen to Ari Shavid? And why not say that like we need to clean up what we can in our house? We may never be able to clean up or the Palestinians may never clean up their house. They may never do any of the things that they'll need to do. No, but that but that's my point. But hold on. So 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 what makes Israel lose its moral credibility in the world? What makes Israel right? Like, um, I would argue unsafer because it, 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 it frays the bonds that tie Israel to, to other countries and frankly frays the bonds of democracy in Israel. And there's something that we may disagree on. I don't think there's a great yeah. future for Israel as an, un, as a non-democratic country. Like that's not something that most of us will get behind. And I think it's, it's a, and I think it's a false dichotomy to say that that's what Israel's got to choose between democratic or Jewish. Israel just has to stop building settlements in the West Bank. It just needs to say, one day there will be a two-state solution if you guys want one. And our show of faith for this is we're stopping, right? Now they won't do that because the settler lobby is incredibly powerful and important in Israel, like, like the crazy right-wing lobby in our country here in America. And it, and it can move some of the big parties, right? Why have things stopped now? Because there's a coalition government that has made, it's like a Frankenstein's monster government of, as you know, parties of the right center, left and, and Arab uh, interests. And so they can't, do anything. And, and in my opinion, that's a good thing for now. But, you know, again, the, the question isn't, I think that you telescope out to a question that is frankly, with all due respect and friendship and affection, not the real issue, right? It, it turns it into a global thing about the survival of the Jewish people. I do not believe the survival of the Jewish people or the survival of the state of Israel is incumbent upon having 250 or 600 or whatever it is now, religious Jews living in the middle of Hebron, the largest Arab city in the West Bank, 200,000 people. I agree people. with that. Yes, our history is there. Okay, what can you do? No, right? I agree like, with that. But but the thing is that, again, when you look at it through the Israeli scope, which is, you know, how many wars the the, the girls that I date have lived through, like two or three wars, lived through, not, you know, me and you yeah, yeah. growing up in the States and there's I some dated those girls too. Exactly. So... So here, so, so, so here's the thing. I'm, I personally more connect with the defense argument than with the religious and, and nationalistic argument. My whole thing is this. If the Palestinian people continue to demonstrate over decades now uh, a, an inability or a lack of desire to truly uh, create a two-state solution, so then that land, as I said, is no man's land. It doesn't belong to anyone. And if, if, if Israelis believe 
which I do personally, that if we have an opportunity to effectively widen our borders, uh, because it's not like we're going into Jordan or we're going into Lebanon or Syria, we did that before we, we had those wars, um, to, to take that land at the expense of uh, a people that we know are uh, state sponsors of terrorism, uh, and we know have, but they are. I'm sorry, you can, you mean, Josh, th- th- but that's that's a that is painting with such a crazy broad stroke, in, in my no, opinion. No, but it's not. That, because... Listen, but but you say they've demonstrated their unwillingness for a two state solution. The a, a Jewish fanatic murdered the prime minister to stop a two state solution, right? Muslim fanatics, Hamas fanatics blew up pizza parlors to stop a two state solution. Yeah, but if you look right? at the proportion but, but, of hold on, but yeah. Polls are snapshots in time. A majority right. of Israelis right now don't support a two-state solution. Let's look at the latest polls. But let's not get to, you said it earlier, polls. I, I, I'm right. less worried about people lying to polls than I am about the fact that, like, a poll tells you where things are. You know, when Shulamit Aloni, the head of the Merits Party, of the Ratz Party in those days, was the minister of education, and Yitzhak Rabin was the prime minister, and Shimon Peres was the foreign minister, the polls showed Israelis overwhelmingly supporting uh, a two-state solution. When you have Naftali Bennett as the education minister, as he was for some period of time, and Ayelet Shaked as the justice minister, and Benjamin Netanyahu as the prime minister, and every kid in Israeli high schools and in armies had been sort of educated under their rule, of course they didn't support the two-state solution. And the same with the Palestinians. So I, I would say polls are important because they tell us where communities are at the moment, but they're snapshots in time. And 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 again, my point is that we can't look at Palestinian intransigence in a vacuum. We have to look at it alongside the, the building and building and building of the settlement enterprise in the West Bank and Palestinians seeing their horizon being being shut down. And again, let's just be honest, right? The thing that Oslo, the peace process was murdered. It was murdered by by fanatics on both sides who use terrorism as an attempt to break it. And, and so giving into that, in my, in my opinion, is not only sort of morally wrong in and of itself, but 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 it, it puts Israel in a terrible situation where by your own like lights, you know, you, Israel now is, is it gonna govern permanently over millions of people to whom it doesn't extend um, equal rights and, and, and civil rights? And we would argue, well, if it extends those equal rights and civil rights, those people will vote Israel into Palestine and it will disappear. And whether you and I are right or wrong, that's not something that we wanna see, right? We wanna see Israel continue to survive and thrive. And so I go back to Ben-Gurion and to Shavit, which is, the one thing Israel could do right now to make the situation a little bit better is to say, we're going to stop and we're going to pause. I agree with that, but it's, it's, again, it's a two-way street. So to, to expect the Israeli side to somehow... To not build settlements? No, no, no. I agree with that. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 not, I'm not in favor of building settlements. I want to be very clear. But again, not, not building settlements, okay? Talking about today moving forward, anything that's yeah. been done, we can't change to say, okay, we're stopping building settlements, okay? That doesn't, that's not gonna fix the, the very deep-seated issues between the Israeli and the Palestinians. You're right, you're right. And so, and so I also think that we've kind of uh, went down this, this path, which, which I'll now contradict, which is maybe too much focus is being put on the settlements and that we have to really look at what's the history and the culture and the, um, the temperature of the Palestinian people in terms of what are they doing on a day-to-day basis and what's their leadership doing on a day-to-day basis to move toward a two-state solution. And also on the Israeli side, the same thing. 
And, you know, the, the settlements are an easy sort of uh, sore, sore spot to point to and say, well, if only there weren't, you know, more settlements, uh, you know, there would be peace. I, I don't believe that for a second. I, I well, think- and that's not what I'm saying. Right. I, I'm saying that um, there are things that both sides at all sides need to do differently. Correct. in order for things to ever get better. And That's the excuse right. that we're not going to correct our behavior because the other side isn't correcting their behavior sounds a lot like my kids when they were really little. And what I'm saying is that if tomorrow an Israeli prime minister got up and made this speech to the world, uh, we still believe in the two-state solution that is still the official position of the state of Israel, despite what my, my, my imaginary predecessors have said. That is our goal, right? And, uh, and we don't believe that there's any real partner with whom we can have this conversation. We also have no interest in, 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 in running the lives of millions of people for, forever. That is not, as Sharon said, as Rabin said, as Paris said, as Barack said, as Omert said, as Sipi Livni said, like as Yair Lapid says, that is not something we want to be involved in. We know that to, um, that road leads to apartheid and we don't want anything to do with that. And so I'm announcing today as a symbol of Israeli goodwill that we're going to freeze settlement building right now. Right. We're going to do it and we're going to wait for you to come to the table. We're going to fix the thing that we're doing. So I will tell you what would happen if that happened, I believe. Right. Um, It would call the question for Palestinians, the Arab League, which twice put forward peace plans that Israel actually ignored, because we've all ignored peace plans when it's been inconvenient for us. Palestinians did. And so did the Israelis. The Arab League would say to the Palestinians, look, here it is. Here it is. It's been delivered. they're, They're saying the thing that we've been waiting for them to say. The U.S. administration and the EU would embrace it and say, you've got our full support. And the wind is taken out of the sails of those people that we began talking about, the anti-Israel tikkun olam people. I don't want, I don't feel bad about the tikkun olam words, but just the anti-Israel community, suddenly the wind is taken out of its sails. But it won't happen for one reason and one reason only, which is that the settler movement in Israel is what the Tea Party was, or let's call it the Trumpist movement is in America. It's too potent and powerful a force on the Israeli right. But what, like, what's the downside of my imaginary scenario? What does that do for Israel that is bad? It's, it's, there's no downside. I think it's just internal domestic problems for Israeli. That and I and I also think that again, uh, what what we do often in the West is that we try to impose our thinking and our logic, if you will, on. Uh, other people that just didn't grow up with that same sort of logic. And so I would just say that I think, uh, unfortunately, and I really say, unfortunately, I mean it, that we're giving uh, too much credit to the Palestinians. That, that How that, does that, again, my plan? Because you're assuming that if we do that, then they're going to do something. In I'm not favor. assuming anything. I'm saying we have put ourselves, Israel has put itself in a morally sustainable position that will change the nature of its relationships with its allies. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure I would agree with that. And, and in fact, uh, you could actually make the argument that as Israel continues to build settlements, we now have peace with more Arab countries. So I don't necessarily know that that's true. I would like to think that it's true. In, in a, and again, in a perfect world, but I think that ultimately there's there's some fundamental issues on both sides that both people need to clean up. You know, we know this on an interpersonal level. You know, we right. all have issues that doing the work of cleaning that up is difficult. Now, imagine that on a mass micro scale. It's obviously not so easy. And therefore, it hasn't been done probably for that reason. I'm just... You know, again, we talked about the Tikkun Olam thing and, you know, being anti-Israel, so to speak, in the name of Tikkun Olam, using settlements to be anti-Israel. At a certain point, um, I wonder sometimes if we are just constantly finding things. By the way, the settlements is a, a valid argument. Don't get me wrong. 
but we're constantly finding reasons to to poke holes in the Israel story and in the Jewish story. Well, and my yeah, and my thing well, is ultimately that listen, there's nothing there's nothing worse than a Jew poking uh, holes in his or her own story or hit in his or her own well. There's uh, something people's story. I would say there's something worse than that. Which and, is and, and, well, one thing. I mean, there's lots of things worse. But <laughs> in, in the context of your description. A, a, a Jew using our history and our story to to act unjewishly to but others. It, but right? but so but you have to ask yourself a question. It's like in a, if you're in a relationship, okay, and you want this other person to change, and you've been trying to come to the table for literally decades. And and I'm not saying it's been perfect. I'm yeah, not saying yeah. the Israelis have done everything by the book and they were flawless. But I'm just saying, like at a certain point, because this is how Israelis think, and this is what I've learned living here for nine and a half years. At a certain point, you just start to realize they are not who we want them to be and then what you do is you get out of that relationship that's yes, what a therapist get, would yes, tell you you get out of that relationship right again and i understand where you're going with that. like yeah. i one thing i agree there's a funny the, the settlement issue is a funny one i read a whole chapter about it in the book because of this because it is a lightning rod and i don't know any israeli who well that's not true all the israelis i work with like the the, the folks in the human rights and the civil rights groups don't agree with this lots of israelis don't want to talk about the settlements i had a nice debate with noah tishby who wrote a book that was not totally un dissimilar to mine and she kept on saying kind of what you were saying you're talking too much about the settlements let's not talk about it i feel like sometimes israelis want they're like the wizard of oz don't look behind the curtain let's not talk about what's behind that curtain let's talk about palestinians not accepting us and let's talk about their violence and let's talk about cherry tomatoes and let's talk about making the desert bloom and the reason i want to talk about the settlements is because i think it's the it's the thing in in my communities uh and here i'm not an israeli so i let me say it this way i love israel right and, and and that's the thing that Israel could actually do something about. It can't change the way the Palestinians are or aren't. But to use your metaphor, if the relationship really isn't working, then you have to get out of the relationship. And so getting out of the relationship doesn't mean saying, so I'm going to annex it and keep you all with me for forever, right, without giving you any rights. And it also, I don't think you mean that we should forcibly ethnically cleanse the Palestinians from the West Bank and Absolutely force them over the borders. So what yeah. does getting out of the relationship mean for me? Getting out of the relationship means I am... We we are now beginning a new process in this relationship. We don't want to be here. We don't want to, we want to be separate from you. Look, look, Israel for its first 19 years didn't have these territories. And yes, the borders were too narrow. Um, but what we found was the problem, again, I'm going to argue that the settlements weren't built or are not being built now for security reasons. I think they were built originally for security reasons, but the growth of the settlements is something entirely different. It's an attempt to sort of colonize, I'm using that term generically, yeah, the I'm West Bank as, as part of Israel. And I think that that's a huge mistake, right? That, that, will call, that will be incredibly detrimental to Israel's future and the Jewish future. Um, and I think that Israel just signaling that we don't think we can leave now because we don't trust you people. And we don't think uh, there is a partner for peace. And so the army stays where it is, but we're not going to continue down this path as a signal that we want something different. I, I guess I'm not sure what that doesn't buy us. So what's interesting, though, is that um, the way that I'm reacting to this to this debate is is clearly from a security standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, anyone who's been listening knows that I'm not in favor of imperialism or colonialism uh, from what I've said. What's interesting is that you're, you're right, that it, it started from a security standpoint and then morphed into, yeah, as you described. But the majority of Israelis who do support a two-state solution also support, you know, 
we know that leaders in Israel, politicians, for example, um, platform has almost always been security because it, it's had to be in many cases. So, so the Israelis now that sort of are not like me, they're not totally against the, the uh, you know, the settlements, but they're not against, not totally against them because of what it's morphed into, which is either religious fanaticism or nationalism. They're still looking at it through a security lens. Security and I think lens. that's the, that's the uh, very uh, complex aspect of, of, of the perspectives that you bring, that I bring, that Israelis bring, that Palestinians bring, is that what meets the eye is, like I said, there's just really some deep-seated things there that uh, settlements, yes or no, uh, two-state solution, one-state solution, uh, you know, uh, Jewish state, d- democracy. I mean, let's put it to bed. I want to ask you one final question. I appreciate your time. Uh, no, of course. Can I say one more thing before you ask that question? And go for it. Really quickly. Uh, two quick things. One, I totally agree with you about that. And you're giving me a lot of food for thought about, because I think that like in the Israeli public, we see something that we see in the American public a lot, which is that people have fixed ideas that are not necessarily based on what is currently going on. And that that's a really important thing for us all to remember. Second thing is I would like you to do me a favor and I will arrange it. You can edit this out if you don't want to keep it in the podcast. No, 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 it's going in. I would like you to be my guest um, on a tour of Hebron with Shovrim Shtika, with Breaking the Silence. I'll arrange it. Um, you'll go. Again, you can cut this out if you don't want it to be public. Um, but I think you, of all people, would really appreciate sort of seeing the per- that, that perspective on what's happening in Hebron and in the Hebron Hills. I think that I'm not sure it'll change anything, but I think it will brought, it will give you an added dimension, right? I lived in Israel not for nine years, but for three years. And but 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 going there and seeing that definitely shifted the way I thought about Absolutely. some of those issues of security. So what's interesting about what you say is, uh, is first of all, I would be happy to do so, and I'm not going to edit this out. Uh, I'm always interested in broadening, broadening my scope and, and uh, not just in the Jewish world, but in the world in general. So, so I really appreciate that. I would definitely take you up on that. I think, you know, one of the reasons I started Izzy, by the way, is to give the full 360 degree view of Israel, which includes the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, and people need to see it. And, yeah. and I think when people see it, it becomes less black and white and it becomes kind of uncomfortable even to have an opinion about it because there's so much there that at best you can say that's interesting is it good is it bad do I agree do I disagree the problem is when we read headlines and sound bites and it's very easy to have an opinion about those things because they're very surface level so I'll be happy to take you up on on your offer I will be uh, happy to report back to you and to to the listeners and I want to go to my last question, which is about your book, which you've really hinted on uh, quite a few times in the last uh, hour, hour and a half that we've been speaking, which is uh, the book that you recently wrote. It's called Can We Talk About Israel? A Guide for the Curious, Confused and Conflicted. Uh, tell us about the book and why did you write it? Why do you want people to read it and what should they get out of it? Well, the reason I wrote the book is because, um, you know, having done this work for like 20 years, right? one year in the heart of the establishment, but the other 19 years working in sort of a totally different milieu uh, at Progressive Jewish Alliance, now Ben the Ark and, and at NIF, um, it, it, it seemed to me that the discourse and the debate around Israel was getting more and more emotional, vituperative, uh, divisive across the board. 
not only in the Jewish community, in the broader community, but particularly in the Jewish community. And that, and that when it came to Israel, a lot of people, including some Israelis, right? And, and, and this is, again, like I was saying a moment ago, it's true of Americans about America. We, we all tend to be like that parable of the blind men and the elephant, you know, the blind men are walking through the jungle and they come across an elephant and one feels the leg and says, well, an elephant is a giant tree trunk like leg with toenails. And one says, no, an elephant is a long sinuous trunk. And the third guy says, no, an elephant is a floppy ear. And the thing is, none of them are able to see the whole elephant. But the other thing is they're right. They're not wrong. Like the thing that they are encountering is real. It's just not the whole story. And when it comes to Israel, it seems like all of us um, or many of us, most of us, are like the blind men in the parable. We've encountered something about Israel because we've been there, we've lived there, our, our, our rabbis, our grandparents, our priests, our imams, whatever, the news we read, the shows we watch, we've encountered something and that thing is real. It's just not the whole picture, right? So what I'm trying to do in this book is show the whole elephant. And I feel like, you know, there are largely two categories of books about Israel out there. One is what I always call advocacy pieces, right? Like, like books that were written to try to generate sympathy for one or the other sides to the conflict. And sometimes they're subtle and sometimes they're screeds, but I had no interest in, in that. I was very clear. I, I consider myself a, a proud liberal Zionist. I love the place, um, but I also believe that it's okay and, and critically important to sort of be honest about what's happening when it comes to the story of Israel and that we should look at the narratives, the, the American Jewish narrative, the Israeli narrative, the Palestinian narrative, the, all of the narratives and sort of say, okay, so like, why do people feel this way? Why is it such an emotional topic for so many people? And the, and the way I try to do it in the book, oh, in the second category of books are like books by experts for experts or by specialists for specialists. Those are great books. They're super important to me. They're on my bookshelves here, but they're not accessible. And I wanted something that was accessible. I wanted something that would feel to today's readers, especially, but not only younger people, um, the way that, that Amos Oz's In the Land of Israel or David Grossman's books, The Yellow Wind and Sleeping on a Wire, or Tom Friedman's Beirut to Jerusalem or Ari Shavit's My Promised Land um, also felt. Books that would help people navigate, because I could not agree more with your closing comment, from the, that last part of our conversation that like, I even, I write in the book, I say, with Israel, it's not black and white, it's all about the grays. And I believe that you can desperately love and care about a place that is flawed. Look at my own country, right? So I feel that way about Israel too. And so the book intends to be that literary GPS device that I described, right? The first part gives, gives the reader a sense of what actually happened. Right, and and it even says this is this is what the two sides say happened. Here's what actually happened. Here's why they say that. Right, um, and then the second part of the book, once you've got that basic understanding of the history of the place, and again, of course, it's much more Israel centric. I'm not Palestinian. I'm not Israeli, but I lived in Israel. I speak Hebrew. Right, it's much more our narrative, which I also think needs to be looked at in in a critical way as well. Um, but it does try to also bring in the Palestinian perspective. Um, once you've read that first part, the second part of the book goes into sort of the tough issues, right? Uh, the settlements, uh, the, B, BDS, uh, is Israel an apartheid state? When is anti-Semitism, when is his criticism of Israel anti-Semitism? What's the situation of the, of the million, of, of the 20% of the Israeli population that is Arab? What's their life like? What's the relationship between American Jews and Israel like now? How is it changing? What's the, deal with Christian Zionists. It goes into all the controversial topics, but after you've had, you've, you, you, you're, 
you've been forced to hopefully to read the first part so you actually have some idea of what you're talking about and, and so that's that's what the book is and I, i've been incredibly gratified by um the response right like jewish communities all over the country because of COVID, most of the book tour has been virtual. I've done conversations like ours, but but focusing on the book all over the country, mostly with Jewish, but also with non-Jewish groups. And you will be amused to learn that um, that the criticism, there's been two kinds of criticism of the book. Um, one of which I expected and one of which I find pretty funny. The kind I expected is that people on the hard left and the hard right don't like the book. There you go, right? Um, I definitely did not write it for those people. I wrote it for the curious, confused, conflicted, compassionate, right? Caring people who who are who are understand that they might want to make themselves uncomfortable to understand it better. But the other kind of criticism of the book, um, which 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 always amuses me, like the the I got a really nice review in the Sunday New York Times book review, which like for my mom is the ultimate right uh, the ultimate goal, and. Uh, it was a really good review, but then it ends by saying, but at the end of the day, SoCatch doesn't offer a solution to the conflict. He only offers reasons for hope. And I thought like guilty, guilty as charged. So that's the book is intended to 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 give people a, a way into this into this issue in this conversation. And I hope um, leave them with a sense that is however intractable and difficult this is a this is something Israel that is desperately worth caring about. And B, that there are tens of thousands, more, hundreds of thousands of Israelis, Jewish and Arab alike, who are working every day to build something better over there. And, and that's, that's the book. Daniel, this has been a colorful, enjoyable, thought-provoking uh, conversation with you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for your time. And I look forward to many more of these conversations. Thank you, Josh. I really enjoyed speaking with you.